The opening talk uh, was uh, on well, you know, the partly um, on the you know, basic uh, ingredients and uh, one of the aims of uh, you know, the Satipatthana meditation and certainly yesterday's Satna talk uh, was on you know, 14 qualities you know, from the Mekta you know, Sutta, the discourse on loving kindness uh, for a person or 14 qualities that a person you know, should put it and possess who wants to attain you know, that state of peace. Now today, tomorrow, and uh, the day, most likely the day after tomorrow, we shall continue to build uh, a good foundation for your uh, meditation practice. And uh, once all the main points are there and you have a fair understanding of uh, how to do the practice, then the practice will kind of uh, take care of itself. Now, Today we shall, or for the next uh, three nights, we shall uh, explore a passage uh, that uh, frequently uh, recurs in uh, the text at uh, different uh, places and uh, that has to do with the gradual path of training. Now, all of us here as meditators, we are undergoing such a training in Satipatthana. And when we practice Satipatthana, then the meditation will unfold along a gradual path. Now, the way that the Buddha describes this gradual path of training that a disciple or a meditator undertakes and covers the following main stations. And the very first one consists in hearing the Dhamma. So either by listening through or to a discourse or by hearing a friend speak in praise of the wonderful qualities of the Dhamma or by reading a book on the Dhamma or maybe participating in a discussion and so on and so forth. Now, with this, very first, hearing of the Dhamma, and hearing is to be taken in a wider sense, including reading, with this, now then some you know, faith may arise or will may arise in you know, the Buddha himself, namely you know, the enlightened one. And so, this uh, initial faith, the faith is just a starter, and so uh, it is still rather weak. Now, initial faith 
in the Dhamma may also arise in a different way, namely simply by seeing a Buddha statue somewhere, be it here or in a monastery or at another person's house or in one of the Asian countries. And so there are a number of people who've been just very much impressed by the serenity of the Buddha's facial expression as often depicted on statues. Now, this initial faith, and the Pali term for faith is sadda, then leads to right thought. Namely, sama sankappa in the Pali scriptural language. And this right thought then unfolds along the line of, well, clearly seeing the disadvantages of leading a householder's life and um, not being able you know, to you know, practice you know, the Buddha's you know, Dhamma you know, in full. In part, yes, but in full, it might be you know, somewhat uh, difficult. And you know, thus, seeing the disadvantages of uh, you know, the household certain life, one might uh, you know, decide, one hears about uh, you know, some upcoming you know, retreat, and then you know, one might decide that on a temporary basis, one is going to renounce one's certain circle, one's family, one's circle of you know, friends and acquaintances. One will make uh, the necessary arrangements uh, with regard to, to you know, one's job, and then uh, one uh, will uh, join such a meditation uh, retreat. And so, in order, or in order you know, to you know, practice the Buddha's Dhamma in full. So all day long and so, you know, observing you know, the precepts and to you know, the best of one's uh, ability. Now, this, these first two you know, steps of uh, the initial arising of faith and you know, then followed by you know, thoughts of uh, renunciation, nekama, you know, will or might then you know, lead you know, a person and to you know, then also voluntarily uh, accept and uh, observe a certain uh, ethical code of uh, conduct. And you know, this in the Pali you know, scripture language is uh, known as uh, sila and uh, and today, one of our main points will cover the silas in greater detail. And one sees the benefits of the sila, and thus one makes every possible effort to maintain the purity of or in one's bodily and verbal conduct. Now, uh, this 
uh, observance of Fertnesila uh, usually leads uh, to you know, the arising of uh, happiness. And happiness uh, uh, that results or then comes from the purity of uh, one's conduct. However, things don't end there. And another major phase on one's gradual path of training consists in the practice of contentment, the development of contentment as we've or as was mentioned already last night during the talk on the 14 qualities from the Metta Sutta. And so the next a phase on the gradual path of training that the Buddha describes consists in the practice of the restraint of the senses. Indriya Samara Sila, which is actually also an aspect of Fatnasila in a wider sense. And tonight and time permitting, we shall also elaborate more on this. And then the Buddha goes on to describe the development of one's training along this gradual path by saying that the disciple takes up the practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension. So sati and sampajanya in the Pali scriptural language. And this then also includes, or as a further step, one then selects a proper place for one's meditation practice. And the Buddha then very realistically speaking goes on to describe what happens next on this gradual path of training of a disciple or of a meditator. And the next step consists in the arising of the five hindrances. And these hindrances um, in reality do occur and uh, they do cause uh, the meditators a fair amount of uh, uh, trouble. However, they're there to be overcome and it's not uh, impossible. And then when working with some predominant pain and also again and again working with the hindrances, trying to overcome them, concentration will improve and eventually those hindrances will be suppressed. So the Buddha says that concentration, samadhi, is or the development, the arising of a certain amount of concentration is another major step. And once 
a meditator has uh, overcome the hindrances and, uh, and then you know, goes uh, beyond them and uh, develops his or her practice further, and then uh, very soon will he or she understand that formations tend to be subject to you know, the three universal characteristics of impermanence, anicca, of uh, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and of uh, and lacking a self, namely anatta. So what this then marks is the very beginning of uh, vipassana in a strict sense. Uh, so. The Nepali term vipassana can be broken up as v and pasana or pasati. Pasati means he or she or it sees, and then the prefix v means in various modes. So one sees, one understands in various modes, namely in the modes of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And so this then marks the arising of genuine vipassana wisdom. Or uh, insight uh, knowledge. Now, as a meditator, then keeps on contemplating the predominant objects as they occur in the body and in the mind, and oftentimes under the aspect of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, then gradually, after much practice, a meditator will reach liberation, and as the Buddha points out, even full liberation. And then you know, such a person you know, might uh, utter you know, words such as, forever am I liberated, you know, this is the last time I am born, no new existence waits for me. So these and then mark you know, the major you know, steps along you know, the gradual path of training of a disciple or of a meditator. Now, tonight, let us uh, explore, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, some aspects in connection with uh, virtue, you know, since uh, you know, this concerns uh, all of us. Now, you know, to start with an, a story, and uh, not just uh, some invented story, but a real story. It so happened that last year I taught a you know, Vipassana retreat in Israel, a 10-day you know, retreat, and one of the talks uh, was on Nesila. And I prepared this talk a lot and put much uh, you know, time and uh, effort into you know, this talk. And then the talk was over, and so, you know, then maybe a half an hour later, three quarters of an hour later, all the volunteers and myself, you know, we met uh, for you know, the you know, usual evening you know, get-together, you know, discussion of the uh, you know, you know, latest uh, development of uh, you know, the retreat. And, uh, and then the person who was sh you know, chairing you know, the, the evening, our evening you know, get-together, you know, 
morning, he announced. And the topic of our social gathering tonight is your presentation of the Dhamma talk on Sila. Oh, oh. <laughs> so then I thought, oh my goodness, what is going to happen now? <laughs> and so. so and then there were three, among a group of maybe 10 or 11, you know, there were three who were really adamant and certain, you know, they're getting, or, and certain, you know, they were you know, finding faults with you know, the talk. And, <laughs> and I had put so much good you know, goodwill into it. But, in uh, I'd given the talk, I would uh, usually give it in Lubini, and uh, not, uh, not very different from how Asian teachers would give it. Now, uh, the presentation, as given in Israel, would have been perfectly okay in Burma, but apparently uh, not in Israel. So, uh, this then uh, led uh, to a number of uh, reflections and reconsiderations and so on. Now, um, when pondering, I discovered, I discovered, um, well, a definition of uh, the term sawaka. Now, sawaka literally is a Pali term, which means listener. And so, the Buddha defines um, a, sa- a, a disciple, or actually the literal you know, translation is uh, listener, but the wider you know, meaning of the term is a disciple. So a disciple is one who listens. And then you know, the Buddha goes on to specify this further by uh, saying, you know, well, it's actually a noble, you know, noble and mindful listening you know, to the teachings of uh, the Buddha. And so, um, remembering that uh, definition was helpful, namely when it came to this infamous talk on Nirnasila. Now, when listening to a talk, whatever the content may be, a Danton talk on Dhamma, then we should, as the Buddha points out, set aside all sorts of concepts and ideas and certain beliefs or ideologies. And um, obviously, as uh, you know, the reaction you know, showed uh, after you know, that certain you know, demo talk, uh, there was a lot of uh, at the time there was a lot of resistance to the presentation of the talk, and maybe uh, I suppose also you know, to the content of it. And so that then led to an uh, exploration uh, what uh, exploration of uh, the uh, possible uh, reasons now in the in different you know, religions we have uh, um, well, a code of uh, ethical conduct. 
So uh, within in Christianity, uh, those are as uh, most uh, as all of you will know, you know the can, uh, the Ten Commandments, and uh, you know, then in Buddhism it's uh, you know the Sila, and uh, you know, then in Judaism it's uh, the Mitzvah, you know, which uh, which regulates you know, the relationship you know, between God and uh, human beings, and also the relationship among human beings. And it certainly governs many things of the religious life of the believers of Judaism, such as rules concerning the Shabbat and the preparation to the Shabbat, and so on and so forth. And apparently there are more than 600 ethical rules altogether. Now, in Hinduism, if I'm not mistaken, some ethical rules or rules concerning ethics can be found in the Patanjali Sutra, and in Islam, I don't know. Does any one of you know the relevant text there? In the Quran, there are many uh, directives in terms of charity and morality. Okay, so the Quran. Mm. And do you have any you know, more specific uh, you know, text than that? Any you know, chapters or so? Anyways, and so, so what so, you know, this so, you know, then you know, leads us to is uh, that an ethical you know, code of conduct you know, can, of uh, one sort or another you know, can be found in all you know, major um, you know, religions. And, um, and then, upon you know, further you know, reflections, um, I you know, found, well, you know, there is certain, obviously you know, these days uh, also certain code of ethics for you know, physicians and uh, you know, for you know, nurses. And so then it appears that even some big corporations that now are talking about and implementing a certain code, ethical code of conduct, and so even some politicians you know, try to um, stick to a code of conduct and in 2006 well it was the year of the World Cup and so then I heard that even the FIFA the governing body of you know, football for you know, the entire globe has an ethics committee and so I was very pleased to find out and then at the IMS, Inside Meditation Society in you know, Barry, Massachusetts, which is you know, maybe you know, the leading uh, meditation center, the pastor meditation center in this certain country, there exists a committee you know, by the name of Ethics you know, Committee, which you know, then you know, watches carefully over you know, the conduct of you know, well, you know, the meditation teachers, the ethical conduct of the meditation teachers, and uh, also staff and uh, uh, the meditators. 
Now, that thing shows that a certain ethical or to live by certain ethical code of conduct after all isn't certainly that certainly strange and is not necessarily only limited to a particular religion and Sometimes people respond negatively to a talk on Sila because it might remind them of well memories or experiences from the past as as a child when some religious man or woman, male or female priest, would tell the congregation, please don't do this or don't do that. You should this or that and uh, you know, so uh, uh, this uh, may uh, uh, cause certain uh, some uh, reactions and then uh, as part of Christianity talk on uh, ethics oftentimes evokes thoughts about sin and going to hell and so that is then strong or attached with some negative thoughts and emotions now in the meditation practice, a certain degree of self-discipline is necessary. And it may seem like a paradox. By curtailing one's own freedom to do or the freedom to say whatever one likes, in the end one gains a far, gain, you know, a far greater inner freedom, namely Vimutti in the Pali scriptural language. And this then is known as the freedom you know, from the mental defilements. So, um, we may think that externally uh, we are free beings, namely free in the sense to do or to say, like we have the freedom of speech, we have this you know, freedom of uh, you know, work and uh, you know, the freedom of uh, the movement and so on and so forth, yet internally we tend to be uh, enslaved to you know, the arising of the mental defilements. And so when a mental defilement has arisen in the mind and it's quite strong, you know, then uh, we act usually if we don't meditate we tend to act on it so the meditation practice leads to a different kind of freedom namely freedom from freedom from mental defilements now when it comes to 
an ethical code of conduct and its observance in you know, the context of uh, Buddhist uh, meditation practice. Now then, you know, these certain uh, ethical uh, precepts should not be seen as certain uh, some commandments handed down by some uh, supreme being, but rather you know, these are um, are well proposals given by the Buddha that in the end lead to our own and others happiness and they prevent us from causing harm to ourselves and to others now Virtue or Nisida has been defined in different ways. The Dhamma Sangani, which is the first Abhidhamma work, defines it in the following way, namely, as virtuousness is not transgressing in action, not transgressing in speech, not transgressing in both action and speech. And the Venerable Jnana Tiloka in his certain Buddhist dictionary defines a virtue as a mode of mind and volition, namely Nachetana manifested in speech or bodily action. So the way we keep our mind, the way we let our minds uh, um, well behave or work or operate, this will then have a tremendous influence on our bodily and verbal deeds. And Remember that the very first Dhammapada verse as recorded in the Dhammapada and uttered by the Buddha is the forerunner of all things, or the mind is the forerunner of all things. And so, so before we do something, before we say something, there will be some mental intention of either a positive or negative uh, uh, nature. Now, the Visuri Maga defines uh, virtue or sila in uh, the usual classical fourfold uh, manner. And so, uh, this is actually quite uh, helpful. Namely, it says that the characteristic of sila is composing. Now with this term, you or upon hearing this term, you may not understand what is meant. The first meaning of the word composing, silana, is as coordinating, and the second meaning is as upholding. Now, coordinating samadana in Pali means that one's physical and verbal conduct will be coordinated or is coordinated in accordance with virtuousness. And so this then means that there is 
a non-inconsistency of one's physical and verbal conduct owing to virtuousness. Now, many people in our modern society are not necessarily living according or living in a, in a truly virtuous manner. They tend to be more opportunists. And in the presence of some government body, will they behave according to the law? And in the absence of some governing body, when no one else can see, they may do or say things that are not necessarily in accordance with the laws of the country. And what we then have is an inconsistency with virtuousness. Sometimes virtuousness is there, at other times it's not there. And so, thus, the first characteristic of virtue in the sense of composing is that our behavior will be coordinated according to or according with virtuousness. Now, the second meaning of composing is as upholding. And Sila is said to uphold since it serves as a foundation for profitable or wholesome states to come. So, when our bodily and verbal conduct is virtuous, then it means, as we shall see later on, the mind will be free from remorse and a bad conscience. The mind will be free from the agitation caused by remorse. And as a result of this, it can concentrate well and easily. And so, Thus, concentration becomes a possibility, and with a mind well concentrated, one can then um, penetrate the most predominant objects of observation, and thus know its nature. Hence, in other words, the uh, practice of uh, virtue or the training in virtue leads to the further training in concentration which in turn leads to the arising of uh, wisdom and hence many wholesome mental states arise in connection with wisdom but if there is no concentration owing to um, some breach of, an eth of the ethical code of conduct, then, um, well, remorse will be there, there's no concentration, and then wisdom cannot arise, and uh, with it also wholesome mental states cannot arise. Now, the function of virtue is certainly twofold and certainly pretty obvious. The first one is the action to stop misconduct, and the second function of virtue is the achievement of um, the quality of blamelessness in a virtuous person. 
And the manifestation of virtue is certainly given as simply as purity, namely uh, bodily purity, purity of one's bodily conduct, and then the purity of one's verbal conduct, and later on, in addition with the training and concentration and wisdom, then also comes the purity of mind. But please do keep in mind that with the observance of an ethical code of conduct, we can only cultivate our physical and verbal deeds but not our mental deeds. So you can observe as many precepts as you like. The unwholesome mental states may still or will still arise in the stream of consciousness. So we need to go further, deeper to change that. And the proximate cause for the arising of virtue is certainly given as the pair of conscience and shame theory. And conscience is certainly explained as the awareness of right and wrong. Now, the Buddha distinguishes two forms of virtue, and there are many other ways to classify sila. And he says there's virtue as keeping or observing, which is one, and the other one as avoiding, virtue as avoiding. The first one is known in Pani as Charita Sila, whereas the second one is known in the Pani scriptural language as Varita Sila. Now, Virtue as keeping or observing has to be understood in the sense of the Buddha recommending, well, don't do such and such thing. And thus one then knows this instruction or rule and then one observes it, one keeps it. And the second form of virtue is that as avoiding and the Buddha made to our benefit uh, or the Buddha has certainly given to our benefit a number of instructions well, you know, stay away you know, from maybe an act of you know, taking life since this is going to bring harm you know, to yourself and certainly to you know, the being involved and certainly thus this then, um, this certainly we, or, or when it comes to such an instruction, we then avoid any kind of, uh, or any act of taking life. Now, the Visuddhimagga points out, with regard to this twofold virtue, that the first one, namely virtue as keeping or observing, is accomplished by faith and also by energy. 
whereas the second one, namely the virtue as avoiding, is accomplished by faith and mindfulness. So let's start with the second one. Um, by developing more and more mindfulness, we become more and more aware of our intentions, of our you know, thoughts, and so, you know, then it will be easy to spot some unwholesome you know, thought or uh, intention that, if we're not mindful, might uh, otherwise certainly lead to a transgression of uh, a certain um, ethical um, rule of conduct. And as for the you know, first one, observing you know, or keeping, um, this is being, or said certainly is to be accomplished by you know, faith and certain energy or you know, effort. Now, When the Buddha recommends that we should preserve life as much as possible, then we have faith in the validity of this statement, and we then also make the necessary effort to protect life. So, uh, as a practical example you know, for this, let's say uh, you find suddenly you're going to you know, wash your, you know, uh, your face and you find all sorts of uh, ants uh, and other you know, insects crawling in uh, the you know, sink. Then, what do you do? Well, now then you don't you don't just open the water and flush the insects away, uh, thinking never mind you know, they you know, they know how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> But rather, but rather, that you said you should think to yourself, well, let me make a big effort here, a concerted effort to preserve the life, the lives of these tiny little beings here, and then you, well, you blow them away, or you find ways and means to remove them from the sink. Now, the practice of virtue has a deep, deep meaning, namely that it leads in, uh, in a uh, general sense to a reorganization of our deeds, to a reorganization of our bodily deeds, to reorganization of our um, words or our speech, and uh, then uh, also um, to our re to a reorganization of uh, our you know, thoughts. And so, with regard to our thoughts, so, you know, this uh, you know, covers not just sila, but uh, also you know, other uh, aspects. And there, in, in 
working towards liberation, towards knowledge and certain liberation, we need to make certain changes. Otherwise, it will not work. Now, the Buddha has given an illustration for all of this. When we want to dye a piece of cloth that already has a certain color and on top of this is somewhat dirty, then we need to purify it. We need to clean it. And we need to remove, first of all, remove all the stains and then remove the old dye. And then only can we dye this piece of cloth in a new way. Likewise, in, you know, in our concerted effort you know, to work towards knowledge and liberation, we need to you know, purify what is you know, there. And you know, this then you know, covers our, or this is, you know, then applies to our you know, bodily deeds, verbal you know, deeds, and also uh, mental deeds. And the observance of a, of a code, ethical code of conduct, um, usually very much helps a person you know, to avoid any kind of uh, excessive, um, well, egocentricity. Always suddenly uh, being, you know, always uh, thinking only of our own good and not suddenly taking you know, into consideration you know, the goods of uh, or, or the well-being uh, of uh, others. Now, the Buddha has said that, or has mentioned, uh, a number of benefits with regards to Nesila. And the first one, the most simple way of expressing this is in a conversation with Ananda, the long-term attendant of the Buddha. And the Buddha says, virtues are profitable or they're wholesome. They have non-remorse as their aim and they have non-remorse as their benefit. And this is a quote from Anguttara Nikaya. Now, the Nidiganikaya, volume 2, section 86, mentions five benefits in connection with virtue. And the first one is that one whose virtues, possessed of virtue, comes into a large fortune as a consequence of diligence. And before explaining um, this particular benefit, let me explain the you know, remaining four first, and then you know, the first one will make much more you know, sense. Now, the Buddha you know, states as the second benefit that a fair name you know, will be spread about a virtuous uh, person. And so, 
after a while, people will recognize that such and such a person is a virtuous person, and that he or she does what the person says, and says what he or she does. And so certain, uh, or integrity is there, and certain people recognize this. And certain accordingly, they, they will then uh, mention this to others and say, yes, you can work with this person, this person is a really uh, reliable and uh, virtuous, honest uh, person. Now, the third benefit as given by the Buddha for a virtuous person is that such a person enters an assembly without any fear or hesitation. So, if you've lived a virtuous life for many years and you simply have not transgressed in any way, then you will most likely not have enemies. And thus you can enter any assembly, any meeting, any conference without having to fear to meet some of your suppliers which you otherwise, or in the case of a non-virtuous person with whom you have not paid yet, or maybe you've done something terrible and uh, then um, you uh, go to some you know, some meeting or you know, some assembly, and uh, here you know, the first person to meet uh, or the first person you meet is some law enforcement person. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, uh, the fourth benefit uh, that uh, the Buddha uh, states for a virtuous person is uh, that uh, a virtuous person dies in an unconfused manner. Now, this needs some explanation. See, as we go through life, we accumulate all sorts of uh, deeds. We do uh, partly wholesome deeds, partly unwholesome uh, deeds, and uh, when we approach uh, death, these uh, things, or some of our deeds, the major ones, uh, come up apparently in a quick uh, review. And so if we've spent our life as a butcher, uh, having slaughtered uh, hundreds of uh, animals, you know, then you know, most likely you know, some you know, image in this connection will you know, come up. And so uh, not only this, but uh, also, you know, according to you know, Buddhist uh, Abhidhamma, uh, a nimitta, a sign of uh, you know, the uh, you know, well, the realm or you know, you know, the world uh, you know, that we're going to be you know, reborn into, you know, such um, a nimitta or sign will also arise. You know, so, if one has, uh, if a butcher uh, has uh, slaughtered plenty of animals. Yeah, then it might very well happen uh, that uh, uh, the person uh, sees uh, some, uh, uh, well, um, you know, some ominous sign like uh, uh, many uh, animals. 
and uh, this could uh, be uh, taken uh, as uh, a sign for rebirth in the animal uh, realm. And so this then leads to uh, a confused state of mind. Now from a Buddhist perspective, death is an extremely important point in the life of a person and we need to work towards it throughout our living existence. And and then the Buddha gives us the fifth benefit of Sila, namely reappearance in a happy destiny. So it leads to some favorable rebirth. Now, when you think of these, of the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth benefit of leading a virtuous life, then you can see that this indeed leads to leads a virtuous person to have or to gain a large fortune, not necessarily in terms of money, but in in a different sense. Now, in the connection uh, with the second benefit that a good name spreads about the person, the following Dhammapada verse is there, Dhammapada verse 56. And there it says, the scents of rhododendron and of sandalwood are very faint, but the scent or the reputation of the virtues is the strongest. It spreads even to the abodes of the celestial beings. And furthermore, in praise of uh, virtue, the Buddha uh, uh, also says, as is recorded in uh, Dhammapada verse 217, he or she who is endowed with virtue and insight, who is established in the Dhamma, who has realized the truth and performs his or her own duties, is loved by all. And another Dhammapada verse that is well known and oftentimes used to represent the well the essence of the Buddha's teachings is Dhammapada verse 183 which means not to do evil to cultivate what is wholesome to purify one's mind this is the teaching of the Buddhas. Now, the virtue or the um, the Buddhist uh, no, no, 
Buddhist virtue in the form of the you know, five precepts can be said you know, to be applicable not only you know, to meditators you know, during a you know, Satipatthana retreat, not only to Buddhists, you know, but you know, to you know, all you know, beings irrespective of all you know, human beings irrespective of you know, their you know, denomination. And uh, thus, uh, the you know, five precepts you know, represent a certain, uh, well, or, uh, universally you know, valid uh, morality or uh, code of conduct, and they lead to you know, the benefit certain of you know, those who are you know, observing them, and. As mentioned already and during our opening talk on, on the 6th of July, that um, being or leading a virtuous life is or brings about a certain adornment. Now there's also a, a beauty connected with the ethical code of conduct. Namely, in the sense that it leads to mutual trust, it opens doors, and the caterpillars and ants and flies and other bugs say thank you for not stepping on them and for not swatting them. And sila leads, <laughs> and that leads to a respect for life in general. And the Buddha has sort of praised a virtue in many you know, different you know, ways, and so maybe you know, the last you know, such you know, way to, for tonight uh, is uh, recorded in Dhammapada verse 110, where it says, Better than a hundred years in the life of an immoral person or a person who is uh, unethical, uh, who has no control over his or her senses, is a day in the life of a virtuous person who's not just virtuous, but on top of this, just like all of you, who cultivates tranquility and insights uh, meditation. Now, Sometimes we may not exactly know whether it is proper or not proper to do something and then the Winia, the monastic code of conduct or sila in general recommends that we simply follow the following yardstick, namely uh, taking oneself as uh, as a yardstick and putting oneself in another's place, one should not beat or kill others. 
so in a wider sense, putting oneself into the shoes of another um, to whom one may uh, is considering to inflict some harm in one way or another, uh, one then quickly realizes that one will not want to suffer from such a transgression and just like oneself, one is afraid of the stick, one is afraid of death and any form of punishment, so too others are also afraid and others also cherish life just like we do and thus voluntarily we voluntarily one refrains from uh, such a deed. Now, just to give you an example of how the Buddha expresses or has expressed uh, some of uh, these um, ethical rules. Now, in the context of uh, taking life, the Buddha says, a meditator fulfills the rules of uh, um, well of a meditator literally here in, in the text it says of the monks but you know, this also applies uh, to uh, non-monastics so here she avoids killing of living beings and abstains from it without stick or sword conscientious full of sympathy he or she is desirous of the welfare of all living beings. Now, what we have here is not just an expression of what one you know, should not do, but also the positive aspect of you know, protecting and preserving uh, life is there. And like the Buddha says, you know, desirous of the welfare of all you know, living beings, full of sympathy, full of compassion. And the same approach you know, then is taken with regard to all of the you know, other you know, precepts. And maybe you know, to, uh, to give one more you know, example you know, with regard to you know, wrongful, you know, wrongful speech and you know, then cultivating wholesome speech. One avoids lying and abandons and abstains from it. One speaks the truth and one is devoted to the truth. One is reliable, worthy of confidence, no deceiver of men and uh, women. One avoids slandering or backbiting. One abstains from it. What one has heard here, one does not repeat there, and so as to cause certain dissension, so as to cause some dissension there, and one, what one has heard there, one does not repeat here, so as to cause dissension, but rather one tries to unite those who are divided, and those that are united, one encourages, concord gladdens the person one delights and rejoices in concord, 
conquered and it is conquered that one spreads by one's words. So again, what we have here is the first and to abstain from unwholesome speech, unskillful speech, and then on top of this, the encouragement to develop wholesome speech. Now, maybe this much gives you an idea of uh, um, some idea uh, on uh, virtue. Of course, you know, there would be much more you know, to say, but we simply don't have uh, that much time. Now, just briefly, connected with sila or virtue in a wider sense is also the restraint of the senses. In Pali it's known indriya samvara sila, namely purity um, or purification through the restraint of the senses. And this Restraint of the senses, as uh, outlined at the beginning of the talk, is part of our gradual path of uh, training, and it fulfills a very uh, important uh, role. Now, the Buddha, in praise of uh, this restraint of the senses, has uh, uttered the following two Dhammapada verses, namely 360 and 361. Good is restrained over the eye, good is restrained over the ear, good is restrained over the nose, good is restrained over the tongue. Good is, this is now verse 361, good is restrained in the body, good is restrained in speech, and also in thought. Restraint everywhere is good. The monastic or lay meditator, restraint in every way, is freed from all suffering. Now, when it comes to this restraint of the senses, we need to distinguish between the following two terms, namely the general appearance of an object and its particular features. Now, the general appearance of an object is given in Pali as its nimitta, and the particular features are, or this is known as anubhyanjana in the Pali scriptural language. Now, to give you an illustration for this, the form one, one sees some object that um, has two legs and a trunk and arms and a head. And so, you know, seeing this you know, would um, then qualify as uh, you know, the general appearance, the nimitta. And then you know, seeing 
the particular features of uh, that uh, object, such as its nose and it is shaped in a certain way, or to see, um, well, uh, the way the person is uh, walking. Um, this certainly then is more specific and certainly thus known as Anubhyanjana. Now, in the case of a lack of restraint of the senses, we you know, at first see its general appear, you know, the general appearance of an object, and then later on we may also see the particular features of that same object. And so in both cases, it may lead to the arising of some unwholesome mental state. Now, with regard to the restraint of the senses, the Buddha has given or has stated the following, namely, and this is as recorded in the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta 39, paragraph 8. Because our meditators, you should train thus. We will guard the doors of our sense faculties. On seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp at its signs, namely nimitta, or general appearance, and its particular features, anubhyanjana, since if we left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of its restraint, we will guard the eye faculty, we will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And then on hearing a sound with the ear, it's the same thing, and so on and so forth. And then the Buddha goes on to say, Now, because or meditators, you might think thus, we're possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing, our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, mental conduct, and livelihood have been purified, and we guard the doors of our sense faculties. That much is enough. And you might rest content with that much. Because or meditators, I inform you, the Buddha says, I declare to you, you who seek the recluse's certain status do not fall short of the goal of recluseship while there is more to be done. So, we should not limit our practice to just the practice of the restraint of the senses. Now, when we do practice this restraint of the senses, then the mind will not certainly be unnecessarily agitated through the bombardments through objects. 
and thus the mind will be tranquil and still and with such a tranquil and still mind it will be relatively easy or it will be easy to develop concentration and a certain sense of ease will arise and this ease in turn will then lead to the arising of concentration and this will then contribute to the arising of wisdom however the case is different for one who does not practice restraint of the senses. Now, usually the sense or process operates in a particular manner, namely that there is first of all the arising of of an object. There's first contact, fasa, and this then will be followed by a feeling, and this then will lead to a perception, and so this may lead to you know, the arising of a thought, of some associative thought, vitaka, and in one case it may lead even you know, to a whole proliferation of uh, thinking, papancha in the Pali you know, scriptural language. Now, a second case in the um, when it comes to the absence of or lack of uh, restraint of uh, the senses is that uh, you know, there's first contact with an object so the mental state of contact is there this then you know, produces or leads to the arising of feeling vedana, and so then when the feeling is pleasant it certainly may you know, well, and then it will lead to a perception and based on the pleasant feeling then craving and clinging upadana and tanya Sorry, craving dana and clinging upadana may arise. And so it's kind of like a predictable course of action. And in the case that the object is undesirable, then the whole cognitive process will be accompanied by an unpleasant feeling, so dukkha vedana, and this then may lead to the arising of a sense of dejection or aversion, ill will, and so on. And so, uh, in all three cases, the lack of uh, you know, the restraint of the senses leads to you know, some unwholesome you know, states, you know, ranging from mental proliferation you know, over you know, craving and sudden you know, craving and clinging, all the way you know, to you know, the arising of aversion or you know, ill will. 
Now, as a meditator, we need to go against the stream, and we need to um, work, even though there is again and again a great temptation to look around whenever one hears the sound of some some, unique bird or special rare bird, and even though there is this temptation, yet one needs to resist it. Normally, a person would simply just look at the object, and under normal circumstances, there's nothing wrong with this. Now, to give you a very practical illustration for how a lack of the restraint of senses, namely asamvara, or indriya, asamvara, nisila, what this does. We're practicing here at the Vallecitos mountain refuge, and then one day some, um, well, very uh, young and charming and good-looking young man and woman come walking into the meditation, or into our meditation location here. And so, so a meditator who is not guarding over his or her uh, senses will discover these certain uh, two uh, young people, and uh, then, if oneself is uh, a male person, one uh, might uh, take much uh, interest in uh, the young woman that uh, is certainly coming along. And if one happens to be a female meditator, then one might uh, take much interest in uh, the young man that is certain coming along. So at first, you know, one sees you know, just the general you know, appearance of you know, these two people. One recognizes these are two human beings you know, while they're still at a distance. And then, as they come closer and closer, and as one sees the particular features, you know, one and then uh, gets uh, interested and so they can't get enough uh, looking more and more and more and so and then, you know, usually it doesn't end you know, there, and what one has seen, you know, then one takes to one's sitting meditation, and uh, while sitting patiently on the cushion, the mind you know, goes off into all sorts of uh, you know, directions, and sometimes even you know, fantasies uh, arise. And so, obviously, with this, the mind is then not pure anymore. Thus, the restraint of the senses really helps to prevent unreason, unwholesome mental states from arising. Now, 
to conclude today's Dhamma talk you know, with a story you know, that is mentioned in the Visuddhi you know, Magga, namely in the connection with the restraint of uh, the senses. And I'm quoting from Visuddhi Magga, 1 paragraph 55. It seems that uh, a certain elder by the name of Mahatissa was on his way you know, from uh, a place called Chetya Pabata, namely the mountain of, uh, of stupas, and apparently an area you know, where there were you know, many you know, monasteries at the time. So he was you know, on his way from Chetya Pabata to Anuruddhapura, an ancient, uh, very famous uh, uh, Buddhist uh, site in near Sri Lanka or near Ceylon. And he was on his way you know, to you know, collect arms. And at that time, a certain daughter-in-law of a clan who had quarreled with her husband and had set out early from Anuruda, Anuradha Nepura, all dressed up and tricked out uh, like a celestial being, you know, to go to her relative's uh, home. So, this monastic venerable Mahatissa on the road and being low-minded she laughed a loud laugh wondering what is that wondering what is that the elder looked up and finding in the bones of her teeth the perception of foulness he reached arahanship right then and there and then <laughs> and then and then it was said he saw the bones that were her teeth and kept in mind his first perception and standing on that very spot the elder became an arahant but as for the husband who was going after um, his wife, he saw the elder on the road and asked, Venerable Sir, did you by any chance see a woman? To this the elder said, Whether it was man or woman that went by, I noticed not but only that on this higher road there goes a group of bones. Let me conclude tonight's Dhamma talk by wishing may you have that certain restraint of the senses as and practiced by Elder Mahatissa and being well aware of your very first perception may it lead all of you, me including, to the final goal namely full liberation and this is it for tonight Since it's already 8 o'clock, so we, tonight we won't have a question and answer session. We can uh, maybe have our first question and answer session tomorrow after the Dhamma time.